Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Hello, welcome to episode three of Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Randon, director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In our previous episode, we discussed Venezuela's refugee crisis. Over 5 million people have left the country in search of basic necessities and a better life. This week, we'll be focusing on the conditions inside Venezuela that are driving this mass exodus, including the health system and lack of access to food and medicine. COVID-19 has prompted renewed calls for international assistance for Venezuela's healthcare system, which after years of decline is among the least prepared health systems in the world to handle the pandemic. The Maduro regime stopped publishing health statistics in 2016, so it's difficult to know how bad the public health situation is in the country. But even then, circumstances were dire. The mortality rate has increased by 65%, for example, in two years, and the infant mortality increased by 30% respectively. As coronavirus began to spread throughout the region, doctors and nurses in Venezuela began sounding the alarm and calling attention to the fact that many public hospitals don't have regular access to running water or electricity, let alone protective gear or respirators. When I traveled to the Colombian border, I met a Venezuelan migrant named Debier, and this is what he had to say about the Venezuelan crisis. What I'm saying is easy to hear, but sometimes it's outraging that our sister countries, other countries, they have a hard time believing that it's true that Venezuela is suffering, that it's true that they're killing us slowly, that we have a cancer, that we're dying little by little. To unpack this issue, we're joined by Catherine Bliss. She's a senior fellow at the Global Health Policy Center at CSIS. Catherine studies how political and cultural perspectives shape approaches to global healthcare challenges. She also focuses on policy approaches to vaccine preventable diseases and analyzes U.S. support for health programs in low and middle income countries. Though she studies public health policies throughout the world, Catherine has extensive experience with Latin America and Venezuela specifically. Among other things, she is a former deputy at the CSIS Americas program. It's really great to have you, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. Now, before we dive into the current situation, Catherine, I want to backtrack a bit and discuss the history of health policy in Venezuela. 
After all, a lot of our attention right now is on COVID-19. Venezuela health crisis goes beyond the current pandemic, right? For example, the healthcare was a central pillar on Chavez' campaign for president. In the 1999 constitution, he established the healthcare was a right and outlined the need for a participatory and decentralized healthcare system funded by the government. This evolved into one of Chavez' signature policies, Misión Barrio Adentro. La misión es todo un éxito, y yo diría más que un éxito, es un ejemplo para el mundo entero de cómo se atiende a un pueblo, de cómo se gobierna un pueblo, de cómo se le da a un pueblo lo que ese pueblo merece. Catherine, can you speak a little bit about this effort and what were the objectives of this program and what were the results? Sure. Well, thank you. So in the late 1990s, with the new constitution in Venezuela, you know, Article 83 really set forth a vision both about the right of the population to healthcare, but also the responsibility of the, the state, of the government to provide that and to provide it in a way that was equitable and accessible to all members of the population. And I think it's important to understand this because over the course of the 1990s, you know, and even over the previous decades, there had been a number of reforms taking place within the health sector in Venezuela that had decentralized uh, some of the state responsibilities, um, but had also, many people felt, really led to an inequitable distribution of access to health services. And this was really, became very apparent during the cholera outbreak in the early 1990s. Um, and so, you know, I think as the new constitution was put into place and as a new national system of public health with an emphasis on free health coverage, universality and equity in terms of access was really disseminated, the vision for Misión Barrio Adentro was, was established and, and elaborated. And the idea behind that, I mean, taking the name, you know, within the neighborhood, the idea was right. to go to the people, not to necessarily bring people into, you know, large and distant remote health services, but bring those services uh, into, you know, the people's communities, particularly in some of the urban centers where there was a sense that that had been lacking. And so, you know, the vision was really to promote you know, this idea of social integration with respect to access to primary health care in particular. The program was funded uh, through revenues from the state-run oil company, PDVSA, and, you know, was really expected to, you know, provide access in a way that people didn't have to, you know, leave their homes or leave their communities in order to, you know, engage with with remote health personnel, but, you know, could really um, find people within the communities that they could trust. Over time, I think, you know, if you talk to people who have, you know, assessed and, and looked at, at the outcomes of that program, there are a number of different things to take into account. One is that the medical personnel who were brought in, some of whom were doctors from Cuba, you know, came in to provide these services in the communities, had a different level of certification than the typical uh, medico cirujano in Venezuela. Um, they had a, a different level of training. But, you know, while that meant that they were able to provide kind of services at the very primary level when it came to referring patients to hospitals and, you know, kind of integrating them into the larger system of healthcare, there were challenges in that those Cuban doctors weren't always licensed or credentialed at the major hospitals. And so there were often interruptions in care. You know, at the same time, as oil prices collapsed, you know, beginning in 2014, 
the revenues that were available from Mission Barrio Adentro also um, suffered and um, became more challenging over time. And so, you know, while the vision of bringing healthcare to the people and providing it in the communities was one that really sought to rectify some of the challenges of the earlier decades, the way that it was executed, and in particular, the financing of the program left it open to challenges in the longer term. Yeah, exactly. And now, by all accounts, the country health infrastructure, including Barrio Adentro, is is completely in shambles, right? And the most vulnerable, the most poor people, ironically, are the ones that are being affected the most. I mean, hospitals are also overcrowded, and the normal health hospital system is, is completely collapsing, and they don't have medical supplies, including soap, clean bed sheets, incubators, or even food, electricity, water. So they has been compounded by all these crises with each other. Grady, one of the Venezuelans I interviewed, recalls how grave the situation was in Yaracuy. Yes, we've experienced it. We get to the hospital and there's nothing. And I'm saying that, I don't know, well, my dad works at the hospital as a guard. With my dad working there, I thought maybe he would have a little bit of, that they would try to help his kids when they get sick at least, but nothing. Now, Catherine, what are the biggest challenges that Venezuela health system and medical professionals face both in the short and long run? And how has this been affected by the current COVID-19 pandemic? Well, Moises, thank you. I mean, some of these issues you've already touched on. You know, one is the lack of data. The government really hasn't, if they've collected it, they haven't reported the data on just basic health conditions or services in the country in several years. Haven't reported this to major international health agencies. So it's very hard to get an accurate assessment of the situation and to compare it from locality to locality within Venezuela, and then, of course, to compare it to other countries in the region or to compare it to countries worldwide. You know, the second is also an issue you've brought up, these reports of collapsing health infrastructure. Many facilities have either intermittent or no electricity or water. They lack soap and protective gear, and this is, you know, essential for infection control. So, you know, if people are coming to the health facilities looking for a diagnosis or looking for help, whether it's, you know, for COVID-19 or for something else, the potential that that the personnel with whom they're interacting are able to, you know, prevent infections from spreading from patient to patient or from facility, you know, from room to room is limited because of this lack of supplies. You know, at the same time, there's a lack of essential medical supplies. And this is especially problematic for people who have chronic conditions like HIV or hypertension, diabetes and cancer, you know, people who are relying on daily medications. Mm -hmm. There are many reports of people who, you know, are, are dependent on daily medications and they might get one of them for a while and then have to go off of it for a while. And then they might get access to a different one, which is not exactly the same as what they were taking before. And so this can, you know, lead to greater problems and exacerbation of their conditions in some cases. You know, we've also seen a resurgence of some infectious diseases. A few years ago, there was a spike in measles, as well as diphtheria, uh, when routine immunization services were interrupted. PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, has worked closely with the government to try to bring that under control. But the spread of malaria is also a, a particular challenge. And then, of course, you know, now the whole world is facing COVID-19. And Venezuela has reported officially about 331 cases and 10 deaths. In all likelihood, given the number of cases in surrounding countries, you know, Brazil, Peru, Colombia, and other countries in the region, 
the caseload, you know, may well be much higher. But we know that preventing the spread of COVID-19 through hand washing and the use of protective gear for health workers in particular is important. But with these supplies of water and soap, particularly in health facilities, you know, being intermittent, this is going to be a, a particular challenge in the short and in the long term. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why probably I think the World Health Organization or, or another institution said that Venezuela was one of the countries least prepared to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. And it's because, again, we see the combination of so many shortages and lack of electricity, water. But I do want to come back to the issue of, of medical professionals in Venezuela. Catherine, I want to take your take on this um, because another issue that we're facing is that many medical professionals are fleeing the country, right? This is a country that are seeing one of the biggest migration flows in recent history in Latin America. And those include professionals, especially medical and doctors who, who have better opportunities abroad. Is there any role for, you know, any telemedicine or technology that can help facilitate medical assistance from doctors abroad to help Venezuelans on the ground? Is there anything, any experience that you have had on, on this issue that maybe can help? Because again, we have a very active Venezuelan diaspora too, and they all want to help, but they want to help from abroad. So is there any anything that you can shed light on that? Yeah, the migration of health professionals, both doctors and nurses, as well as other health technicians, you know, basically people who would be in the best position to be on the front lines, both within major cities and in rural areas, has been really notable. And people have found opportunities elsewhere where they can apply their skills. There are still health professionals remaining in Venezuela, but with a lack of access both to the kinds of infection prevention and control you know, commodities like water and soap, as well as protective gear and and other diagnostic tools, their ability to manage on the front lines of, you know, particularly this pandemic may be extremely limited. There certainly could be a role for advice and information through telemedicine. I guess, you know, the question is how accessible that would be in situations where there's a limited, you know, access to electricity or the electricity is intermittent. Yeah. Or in situations where there's control over, you know, access to sort of communications apps and, you know, other ways of transmitting information. So, you know, in the absence of having real personnel there on the ground, I certainly think there is a role for digital and, and telemedicine, but how that can function in a situation where some of those communications are tightly controlled and there's a lack of dependable, you know, sort of supply of cellular coverage, perhaps, or electricity, you know, could raise questions as well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, shifting years, one of the major health issues in Venezuela right now is food security, right? Um, this is consistent with the stories that we hear from Venezuelan migrants, such as Jose from Ocumare del Tui. Mostly, I bought food to send to my stepmother and brother because, I mean, at least that's the help that I could give them, I guess. But then I started seeing that my wage was only enough for two bags of flour, some rice and pasta, and so they were worried. And I told them I would find a way to resolve this. And that's when I decided to come here. Jose's experiences are unfortunately not unique. 
Earlier this year, the UN World Food Program released a report which estimated that one in three Venezuelans is struggling to meet basic nutritional requirements, or in other words, like about 7% of the population are in need of humanitarian assistance immediately. In Cúcuta, I interviewed a doctor named Jenny who talked about the health consequences of malnutrition and other related malnutrition issues among Venezuelan migrants. It's worth noting that the diseases they come with are very severe. They're advanced and their nutritional conditions don't permit their bodies to respond to infections or to diseases. Now, Catherine, walk us through a little bit about how bad the food situation is in Venezuela and why this should be probably one of the top priorities when it comes to assistance to Venezuelans from the humanitarian perspective. Well, I mean, I think one of the issues that's important to consider is the fact that for much of the past, you know, half century or more, Venezuela has been an agricultural producer. It's been a country that not only cultivated grain and other cereals for production, but also was able to transform those into commercially available products, whether, um, you know, processed grains and cereals and flours and, and other kinds of food available for consumption. But what we've seen over the past decade or so, and in particular the last few years, is a contraction of that agricultural production and at the same time challenges to the supply of foods from the productive areas, from rural areas, into some of the urban markets. And so sort of the breakdown both of sort of the domestic supply chains, but also with the collapse of oil prices and with the collapse of trade and because of sanctions and other things, you know, the inputs of trade around agricultural products into Venezuela, the ability of those foods to get to market, and even if they are available, you know, they tend to be very expensive, has become prohibitive, um, even sort of access to some of the very basic staples has become prohibitive for people both in the larger cities and in some of the outlying regions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And also seeing price controls mechanisms that the Maduro regime has been imposing on food items. I mean, we'll see, I think, more food charges in the next few weeks and months because both the production and the price controls is, is just killing the whole food system in the country. Now, before we move into policy recommendations, I would like to place a gender lens on this health crisis as well. Now, Venezuela's health and humanitarian crisis disproportionately affects women. This was clear in Cúcuta, where Venezuelan migrants such as Tatiana told me about the sheer number of Venezuelan women who have to cross a border to give birth. Actually, here in the hospitals, the doctors say that out of every 30 women who come to give birth, 25 are Venezuelan because they leave Venezuela to come get medical attention here. So, Catherine, how are women disproportionately affected by Venezuela's decaying health system? And are there specific gender concerns related to COVID-19 specifically? Sure. I mean, these are important questions to consider. You know, and on the one hand... You know, some of the data that has come out or, you know, has been released in, in recent years surrounds maternal health. And the statistics that have come out have shown, you know, an increase in the number of deaths of women giving birth in hospitals in Venezuela. And, you know, I think the lack of personnel in health facilities, the inability to carry out adequate infection control in some places, make it a very dangerous time to give birth. 
in the existing health facilities. And, you know, I think the quote that you've provided, you know, really shows that, you know, in many cases, women are trying to go elsewhere in order to give birth, if at all possible. Yeah. You know, at the same time, there have been a number of reports of shortages of essential reproductive health commodities, like contraceptive pills or devices. Of course, this increases the likelihood of unplanned pregnancies, which can also be dangerous particularly, you know, if if they occur too close to a previous pregnancy or, you know, in, in other situations where the women really can't access the kind of prenatal and labor and delivery assistance that they might need. Now, as far as the situation with COVID-19, you know, one of the things that has been reported a great deal is that, you know, in countries around the world, and many people are looking in particular, Latin America and Venezuela, where stay-at-home requirements or quarantines have had, you know, people being in the domestic space, you know, more than they might otherwise, you know, have led to reports of higher rates of domestic and gender-based violence, that women who are, you know, in the home for a greater sort of concentrated period of time with others in the home may be more vulnerable to gender-based violence. We have seen as well, you know, around the world that when schools are closed and when girls are you know, at home and not at school and perhaps left alone during the day if if parents are still out working outside the home, those girls themselves are also vulnerable to uh, sexual abuse, to rape, and to unplanned pregnancies as well. So, you know, some of the complications of quarantines and stay-at-home and, you know, isolation policies lead to some of those kinds of challenges. You know, at the same time, with the larger, you know, economic collapse, I mean, we've seen the, the global economy shrink and, you know, dire projections about, you know, what will happen over the next few months to year. Uh, the collapse of oil prices and, you know, the collapse of many of the sort of aspects of the labor market in Venezuela may also hurt women who work in the informal sector to an even greater extent. Um, So their economic opportunities may be even more limited than we might have expected otherwise. And then at the same time, you know, we know that, you know, of the health personnel that remain, many of them are, you know, nurses, doctors, and health workers at the community level are women who may be, just because of their work, more vulnerable to infection with COVID-19 in the long term. Yeah, that's important to to understand and to raise awareness that these issues are happening within the whole pandemic as well. Catherine, I know you are following the whole health crisis in the world right now, and I, you have written extensively about Venezuela health system. You you have a report out in our website in CSIS. So let's talk a little bit about the policy recommendations and what thoughts do you have to both help right now and mitigate the suffering of the Venezuelan people, and maybe looking in the future in a democratic Venezuela. But let's talk about what can the international community and the interim government led by Juan Guaido do right now to address this health crisis? I mean, I think one important thing that has been discussed quite a bit is to, you know, ensure that there are agreements in place you know, and whether that's, you know, exceptions to existing sanctions, you know, or the removal of other prohibitions on kinds of trade or economic activity in order to allow essential medicines and supplies to be delivered and distributed to all populations in need. So not just some populations, but really distributed according to need to those populations. And, you know, to really allow the essential medicines and supplies that are so critical to be, you know, made available to the neediest populations. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, looking towards the future again, what are the most crucial steps that you think a, a day after government or a democratic government 
must be prepared to take right away to get the country's health infrastructure back on its feet, treating diseases or even alleviate the suffering of the people. Well, I'll look at four things here. One is data collection. There needs to be a comprehensive effort to collect data at all levels, from the local to the regional and state to the federal level, to assess the health conditions and needs of the people and to collect that information in a way that is comparable both across the country and you know, internationally. A second is to undertake an infrastructure survey of critical health infrastructure and really understand where the challenges are and where the most important needs are so that those can be prioritized, both in terms of population access and in terms of, the very least, not creating a greater source of infections and transmissibility of, of infectious diseases, but providing the kind of care and services that people need. You know, a third has to do with health workers themselves. If there are ways to invite and bring back the considerable diaspora of medical professionals and health professionals who have left Venezuela to rebuild a system that they already know very well, that can be a critical step in rebuilding and amplifying a large group of community health workers who can be available in cities and smaller areas and in rural areas to bring and renew health services, you know, across the country. But, you know, I think underpinning all of this and what will be very important, you know, both around data and infrastructure and the renewal of services and the training of workers is communications. And that's going to be rebuilding the trust of the people in the health system and in the kind of information that they're receiving from health officials and from the government so that they can be confident and feel that their needs and their conditions will be met in the health system of the future. You know, the more that I listen to you, the more I'm convinced that the role of the international community will be crucial because Venezuela right now, either today or in the day after, is not prepared to handle all of these important tasks so people like you and others from, from the international community who understands both the crisis on the ground and the international health system is, is going to be critical. So thank you again for joining us in this podcast, Catherine, and thank you for bringing your knowledge and your expertise to Venezuela always. Thank you very much. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapolis Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Thank you.